I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. This is a long chapter, and we've been moving our way through this chapter very slowly. Um, but there's so much rich material here that we, we just need to, we need to understand this. And we've been looking at this wonderful servant of the Lord and what a godly example he is to us. As New Testament believers, we need to understand what a servant is. And this provides for us, I think, what uh, the quintessential servant of God. Genesis chapter 24, I'm going to begin reading at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered, said, The matter comes from Yahweh, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as Yahweh has spoken. Now it happened that when Abraham's servant heard these, their words, he bowed himself to the ground before Yahweh. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. And then they arose in the morning and said, send me. And he said, send me on my way. Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days or even ten. Afterwards, she will go. And he said to them, do not delay me, since Yahweh has made my way successful. Send me, on, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the young woman and ask about her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent her, sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, you, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your seed possess the gates of those who hate him. Then Rebekah rose with her young women, and they mounted the camels and went after the men, so that the servant took Rebekah and went. When Isaac had come from going to Ber Laharoi, for he was living in the land of the Nagav, and Isaac went out to muse in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and saw Isaac and dismounted from the camel. Then she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant recounted to Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent, mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, it is our joy to open this book and just glean its principles. Um, Lord, I pray that this would be honor, honoring and glorifying to you. May I be careful with the text. And then, Lord, may we apply these things to our life that, that can enhance our life and to further glorify you and to make us holy like you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is just a classic story in many ways. Uh, in modern terms, it would be, be, equate, be equated to a, a Hallmark movie. Um, and it's a story about family and, and it's a story about love. Abraham's family. And, and it's, uh, we, we all love a storybook ending. It just makes you feel good. And, and Hallmark has perfected that art of the feel-good story. Now, you can always see what's coming within really the first five minutes of the, the movie, right? You, you know who's going to marry who by the end. But you know what? We still watch it, don't we? We still, we still look at that because it, it just makes us feel good. We know that there's going to be twists and turns and and in fact, it could be based on a true story, and we may not know the, the outcome, but we keep watching. So, so this is a, a classic story, and it's a, about a family. It's about love. It's a love story, a romantic story. Number two, it's also about a faithful servant. And we've been looking at this faithful servant, his dependence upon the true and living God. This is Abraham's servant. And he has been influenced, obviously, by Abraham. And his task is now to find Abraham's son a wife. And he has to go to Abraham's family, which is 450, 500 miles away to the north. And uh, he has to find Isaac a wife. And God has given success. He has led him to the right town, the right village. He's led him to the right family. He's led him to the specific girl that God wants him that uh, he wants Isaac to have so it's about a servant as well but this story also and most of all is about God and, and it's about God's shepherding hand his sovereign hand as he shepherds his people we begin to see we begin to see how God works in the life of, of a believer, specifically Abraham and Abraham's family. And how he has sovereignly guided this, shep, this uh, servant and directed this servant to the right place. And we see the very character of God that, that we're dealing with. The very character of God that uh, Abraham is dealing with. That he is a good shepherd. And he knows how to shepherd his people. He is in control of every molecule in life, and he can bring things together that we can't even imagine. Now, Moses is recording this uh, 400 and some years after the fact, and he's, uh, he's laying out these things to Israel so that Israel can have a deeper understanding of uh, their nation's history, the patriarchy. Um, much like what we would teach our children, the patriarchy, or, or the, the uh, Founding fathers today of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And we teach them about the character of these men and why they did what they did. Well, that's what's going on. That's the purpose of the passage. 
why Moses is writing these things down so that we can understand the character of the God that Abraham is serving. That he is a God who provides. He is a God who protects. He is a God who can shepherd those who believe in him. Very, to, down to the very wife that these men choose. God has orchestrated these things. And he has established this nation. And he is their God. And they are his people. And they need to understand that. They need to understand that God is a good shepherd. And in fact, we need to understand that, don't we? New Testament saints. We need to see, we need to see that we serve a, a good shepherd, that, that there's nothing left to chance, and that he can guide and orchestrate all of the events of our life to bring them together for our good and for his glory. Now, this servant has done everything that he needs to do. He's a wise servant. He has wonderful character. And the Lord has given him success. In fact, success is within reach here. It's almost finished. And, and, but he knows, he knows the nature of man. He knows, the, he knows that we live in a sin-cursed world. And he knows that things can go wrong. And that's where we come in at this story. If you're in the Hallmark section of the movie, maybe 15, 20 minutes, who comes walking in is the old flame, you know. Somebody that's going to twist and turn the story. That's where we are in this. There's a, there's a, a glitch that's going to happen. But we've been studying out the character of this godly servant, and we know he is a good servant. Is a good example for us as, as New Testament servants of God. He is showing us what a good servant is like. And we see just godly character. Now, we don't just look at his godly character. We see the principles within the Old and New Testament. We glean the principles and we evaluate his life uh, based upon those biblical principles. But every Christian, and this is the point, that every Christian should strive to be a good servant. You are a servant of God. If you are a believer, you are a servant of God. And you need to be a good servant. That's what we want. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And the question then is, is what is a good servant? We've been looking at the characteristics, ten characteristics up to this point. A good servant is it realizes that they are under obligation to, to God and they will give an account someday before their master. A good servant, number two, a good servant is one who, one that the master can trust with great responsibility, is trustworthy. Number three, a good servant focuses upon the master's desires, not just the commands, not just duty, but his desires to please his, his master, and that's the focus. Number four, the good servant wisely uses the master's resources. He's a good steward. He doesn't just waste things on himself, but he, to the benefit of his master's will. Number five, and this is the crucial pivotal point in the, in the chapter. We looked at this several, month, uh, several weeks ago. A good servant is dependent upon God. There comes a point in a, a good servant's life they begin to realize they cannot do this on their own. It is, it is way too massive of a task. And they cry out to the Lord. Every servant, every good servant will do that. They will recognize the sovereign hand of God. 
And that this is an insurmountable task and they cannot do it. And so they need supernatural help. And folks, that's where we need to be. We need to realize we cannot do these things. We cry out to the Lord. That's always a pivotal point. Number six, a good servant then, is patient to watch and wait for the hand of God to work. And then number seven, when it does work, when God's uh, hand is seen and He does work these things out, a good servant is thankful. He's thankful when he sees God at work. Number eight, a good servant has a singleness of purpose then. The master's will. Not He's not sidetracked. He's not interested in, in his own things. He's interested in the master's will. And then number nine, a good servant exalts the glory of the Lord. He looks at what God has done and it, and it, and it causes the good servant to worship God. It's just a, a reaction of worship. And then number ten, he he, he just gets out of the way. It's the John the Baptist mentality. He must increase and I must decrease. And, and we begin to minimize our role. And that's a good servant. It's God at work. Now the question is, is how does a servant then respond to objections? To, to, uh, to problems, obstacles? How does a servant overcome obstacles in, in life? And we see these, we will see these, the last two principles here. Number 11, then, is a good servant overcomes obstacles to the master's will. Overcomes obstacles to the master's will. A good servant's going to follow through all the way to the end. Nothing's going to stop him. He doesn't, doesn't take his eye off the goal. He doesn't get distracted. He, he finishes what he starts, if at all possible. He doesn't quit. And the key term is that he overcomes he overcomes. Now let's pick up the story in verse twenty, uh, verse forty-nine, because this is where we ended last time. Verse forty-nine, the servant asks a question of the family here. In verse forty-nine, he says, "So now, if you are going to show loving kindness and truth with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right or to the left." It, it comes down to this one thing: What are you going to do? And he is asking about Rebecca. Are you going to allow Rebecca to come back with me or or not? Now remember, he had stopped to tell them the story and he refused to eat until he was able to tell the story. And then he raises this question, what are you going to do? God has obviously worked here. What are you going to do? Now remember also that if they say, no, she cannot go, then the oath is broken. And he is free to go, according to what Abraham has told him. Now look at their response in verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter comes from Yahweh, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Now let's stop right there. Laban, of course, is is Rebekah's brother. He seems to be the, the more active one, kind of giving indication here that Bethuel, the father, Maybe incapacitated a little bit. We don't know exactly, but that's kind of uh, what you uh, is implied here. <clears throat> and they seem to be wanting to be objective. You know, if God has spoken, then then we can't say either good or bad. That's kind of what they 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 say that. 
we cannot speak to you bad or good. Now, just stop and just think about that. Because that's not really a true statement. If God says this is good, then that's good. Right? We are not to remain neutral over things that God has said this is, this is good. We, we don't have that option. If God said it is good, it is good. God defines good. And we have a whole generation of, in our churches today that are redefining what good is. And we need to remember that. That attitude, there's a certain attitude. In fact, it's a red flag here to this servant. But there's a certain attitude that's permeating our church today uh, is, is that we remain neutral on things. That God has said, no, this is good, this is bad. Now, just notice that. So they go on to say, behold, Rebecca is before you take her and go. If God has spoken, then it's it's clear. And let her be the wife of the master's son, as Yahweh has spoken. So they technically have given their their word. Yes, you know, go ahead and and take her, and that's good. That's a good thing. Look at the verse fifty two. We see the servant's response to that. Now it happened that when Abraham's servant heard their words. He bowed himself to the ground before Yahweh. Again, just an instantaneous thank you, Lord, instantaneous cause of worship. That's just within the the life of every believer, isn't it? There are moments when we see God at work. We just we just praise the Lord and we just we are thankful to the Lord and we see his shepherding in our life. We see his hand of blessing here and the servant recognizes that and he rejoices before the Lord and he worships. There's a a brokenness. There's a little bit of humility that we see here. He's humbling himself. And it kind of reminded me, I don't know why, but it just kind of reminded me of when Peter was out in the boat, fished all night, couldn't catch anything. And Christ hollers out and says, uh, hey, cast your nets on the other side of the boat like the fish care which side of the boat the net is on. And, and he pulls in a, a huge haul and have to get other boats. And Peter then goes and, and when he sees Christ, he says, go away from me. He, was, he, was, he says, I'm a sinful man. There's a humility. When we see God's hand at work, folks, there's a humility. There's a reality of God's presence in our life that causes a a humbleness. That we're not worthy. That causes a a spontaneous worship here. And we just see that. Folks, that's, that's New Testament, Old Testament saints. That's what we see. And in verse 53, we see then the servant just brings out says the servant brought articles of silver and articles of gold and and garments and gave them to Rebecca and he also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother and then he he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night it's a time of celebration the lord has given success it's a wonderful thing everything looks good this is, we could see the hallmark story here. Within the first few minutes, we see how this is going to end. This is going to end well. And our hearts are already uplifted. 
And we're encouraged in the next morning, verse, the end of verse 54, it says, And they rose in the, uh, in the morning, and he said, the servant said to the family again, Send me away to my master. Okay, now that would have been protocol. A servant wouldn't have just left. He would have asked, is there any, anything that you want me to convey back to the master? Or anything you want me to take back to uh, the master? Send me on my way. Um, and here's what they say. Verse 55. And here's the conflict. But, and that's a big but right there. But, her brother and her mother said... Let the young woman stay with us a few days or even ten. Now, okay, you jump from a few to ten. That's kind of indefinite. Okay, how long does this going to last? Well, kind of indicating some things there. Afterwards, she will go. And so you have a little bit of objection here. Slow things down a little bit. Don't rush the girl, let it settle in her mind. Or maybe they're waiting for a little bit more money, maybe, or gifts, more, more gifts. Or, or just maybe just an emotional tie and maybe the servant's being insensitive here. But, but for some reason, they, they want to delay here. And this is the first obstacle, really the first serious obstacle that we've seen. And we know that this is a crucial point. Because back in verse 5, the servant anticipated, here's what's going to happen here. If you look back in verse 5, the servant said, this is when he's talking to Abraham, they're thinking this thing through. And he, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me, should I then take your son back? And he says, by no means. Then the, the oath is broken. If she doesn't follow you, then the oath is broken. And again, back in verse 41, now if they do not give her to you, then you will be free from my oath. If she refuses to come, or if the, the parents say no, then, then the oath is broken. And this servant then goes back empty-handed. And he knows that. This is a, a crucial thing here. They're kind of infringing here upon the, the mission. And he sees danger. Now, we may say, well, that's just a small little thing, but it's probably like the, the sweater that just has one little pick in it. You begin to pull that little pick, and the whole sweater begins to just come apart. That's what's happening here. And the servant sees that. He sees the danger. He, he knows that the, the mission is in jeopardy here. He knows that people can change their mind. He knows. And, and there's risk here. And this is, this is again, this is where... The, the, the old flame walks in. And this is the, the twist and the turn and the plot thickens. And we say, oh no, what if this happens? What if that happens? This is a classic Hallmark movie. But he overcomes. He overcomes. He's a wise servant here. Notice, um, he, he does... He does three things. He overcomes. Look in verse 56. Here's what he does. Now, notice, you see that the character of this servant just comes shining through. He says in verse 56, And he said to them, Do not delay me, since Yahweh has made 
my way successful. Let's just stop right there because there's a, there's a couple of things even within that one verse. Number one, he sees the danger, right? He sees that, that this can undo everything that, that God is doing here. He, he understands that he could go home empty-handed and his master would be completely disappointed in, in the outcome here. And he sees this glitch. He sees this little danger in the whole scenario that we have in our mind. Oh, here's what's going to happen. The whole scenario could just come collapsing down. It's just a, a house of cards, if you will. And so he sees that danger. And as good servants, we need to see that, see those things. Number two, notice what he does. He focuses the attention back on the master's will, on God's will, actually. And the two are, are the same. He says, do not delay me. since Yahweh has given me success. Yahweh has spoken. You guys acknowledge that. Yahweh has spoken. Don't delay me now. If God has spoken, then, then let me go. Let me go my way. And so uh, the master's will will be done. And then the, the next thing he does is just he continues to trust Yahweh, continues to trust the Lord. So they say to him, verse 57, if we will call the young woman and ask about her wishes. Now, that's trusting the Lord. He has to just step back. He's done what he can do. Now he's just got to put it in the Lord's hands and, and say, okay, Lord. And that's what he does. And you see, again, the character of this servant come shining through. He, he wasn't passive. He wasn't passive. He did what he needed to do. He pointed them back. This is the master's will. This is God's will here. I just want to apply this a little bit because I think there's something to be said because we make plans all the time. We make plans. In fact, it may at first start out well and there's a certain level of success and then little things begin to go wrong. It never works out quite the way we think that it should. Or these little things just begin to, to happen here and there. And we know in real, real life, and in, in reality, things, bad things happen. We do get rejected from time to time. We do get sick. There is death. There is car wrecks and flat tires. There's, there are those times when we don't get the job, when things begin to break down, because we live in this sin-cursed world. And at some point, you just need to resolve in your mind, folks, at some point, you're going to be the victim there's a victim mentality. You need to understand you're going to be the victim either of your own sinfulness or the sinfulness of, of somebody else. But somebody, but at some point, you're going to be a victim. And what you do at that moment is crucial. Your character is going to shine through. How do you handle those objections? How do you handle difficulties in life? At that point, you're going to choose. Am I going to overcome? Or am I just going to remain the victim? And, and just take on the, the victim mentality? Am I just going to abandon my master's will? Am I just going to be passive? Or am I going to step up and, and say something here? And the Lord has already given success to a certain degree. But just like always, it always is. The Lord, He gives success. It's in His hand. 
But we're not passive participants. We're active participants. God called Israel. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you the promised land. But what did they have to do? They had to go in and actually fight for that land. Take that land section by section and spread out within that land. So God gives success. He gives us the victory. But yet we are responsible to do our part. And, and that's, what we, that's what we do. We have to stand. We have to be active. We have to endure. We have to overcome. That's what we see here. Not overbearing. But He met the, the, the obstacle with the force that needed to, to happen. And folks, that's, the, that's exactly the Christian life. God expects His servants to not just be passive, but we are to overcome. And again, I, I keep using that term because that's a term that's used throughout Scripture. We see that. Now, Christ has overcome for us. Those who are in Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer. That's good news. John chapter 16 and verse 33, he reminds, Jesus reminds the disciples, he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. John chapter 1, verse 5, he says, the light, it says, uh, John says, the, the light shines in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. The word is actually overcome it. The darkness couldn't overcome Christ. He overcame. He overcome the penalty of sin, the hatred of the world, even death, the punishment for our sinful flesh. So Christ is overcome, right? But, but we don't have a passive role here. We have a very active role. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, let me remind you of what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and you'll see that on the, on the screen. Chapter 2 and verse 14. But... But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph proceeding uh, in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. So our victory is in Christ, but He is leading us. He is leading us in triumph. In triumph. What, is, what does that mean? There's certain things that we have to overcome. If you turn over to 1 John, we'll see some of these things. 1 John chapter 5, we see in verse 4 and 5, says, uh, For everyone that has been born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes the world. That's one thing that we have to overcome is the world. That's, a, that's pretty significant. And this is, the, this is the overcoming that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. It's a strong, practical, everyday faith. Now, do we have victory over the world? Yes, in certain sense. But on a daily basis, our faith is going to be challenged. And it's that faith that's going to overcome the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He actually has to believe that, put that into practice. So it's not a passive thing, it's a very active thing. If you turn back to chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, we see another one here. Verse 14, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. 
Notice the young men, though. He says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Okay, strong. How did they get strong? Spiritually strong is is, is what he's talking about. How did they get spiritually strong? Just by the word of God. Just continue to learn and understand and let that word fortify them and strengthen them. To the point, he says, you abide, the word of God abides in you and you have overcome what? The evil one. Satan himself. Satan's not tripping me up. His lies are not, are not uh, tricking me, deceiving me. I, I see his schemes. The word of God is strong in those young men who have applied themselves to the word of God. The spiritual young men. We see in, in Revelation, we see... Uh, we are called overcomers, but we are called to overcome. And what are the battles? What are the battles that we are to overcome? There's, there's three, three areas. Let me just quickly give these to you. Number one is Satan. We saw that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. When Satan comes, he presents lies. That's what he did with Eve. Now, so often we, we think of Satan as being scary and, and all, wanting to scare us. No, he's there, very subtle, and he just presents lies. We have to overcome those lies with the Word of God. And that's why we become strong in the Word of God. But you know what? He's an accuser of the, of the brethren. He, he condemns us. He makes us question. He deceives us. He gets us sidetracked. We have to overcome that. There's a certain amount of, of reality to that. that We have to know the Word of God enough to overcome Satan. We flee from those temptations that he brings our way. And we do so by the Word of God. If you look at Christ's life, that's the way he, in, in his temptation, he would overcome Satan with the Word. I like what John MacArthur says at this point. He says that Satan continues his effect to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less honor, uh, horrible or horrific, and the gospel less urgent. That's what Satan wants to do. Soften all of those things. And the believer needs to be able to see through those. Number two, the next thing we have to overcome is the world. The, the world, folks, is trying to influence us. And boy, we see it today. The world wants us to conform. In fact, there's threats. If you don't conform, we're going to threaten you. There's, there's going to be consequences. And we see that again in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, 4 and 5. We see Christ has overcome the world. But there's a sense we have to not let it influence us. It's just a reality. We, we look at Daniel and his friends taking on the influence of the world and saying, no, we will not cave. J.C. Rowling, he says, never be satisfied with the world's standard of Christianity. The world wants to bring the standard down. Number three is the flesh. We have to overcome the, the Satan, Satan, the world, and the flesh. Even our own flesh. And we see that in, in Romans chapter 6. The idea that we are to be killing sin, killing sin's desires even within our own life. The, the urgency to uh, give in to sin, the reactions, the, the drives, the sinful drives of the sinful flesh. And God confronted Cain, he says, uh, Cain's sin desires to have you. It wants to dominate you. 
And you must overcome it, God says to him. So those are the, that's the battlefield, right? It's Satan. We know how to handle him. strong in the word of God. The influence in the world and even our own sinful flesh. And those, that's the battlefield. God, God, has Christ overcome those things? Yes. But we are to be active in overcoming those things in our own life. We're, we're not in heaven yet, folks. We can't just be passive about these things. We have to be active. And how do we do that? We have to see the danger. We have to focus on the will of the Father, the will of the Master, and then we just have to trust Him. Put those things in Him. We don't want to be like the servant who was hired to tend the sheep that Jesus talks about in John chapter 10 and and sees the the wolf coming or sees the bear coming and flees, abandoning our post. So a good servant overcomes obstacles. Number number 12. Number 12. We will move through this quickly, but this is so rewarding. Stick with me here. Number 12. A good servant looks forward to rejoicing with his master when the job is over. Rejoicing with his master when the job is over. Look at verse 62. This is coming to the end here, to the end of the passage, verse 62. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Laheroi, for he was living in the land of the Nagab. That would have been about 25 miles south of where uh, Abraham lived. And he was visiting down there for whatever reason. And he came back just at the right time. And, and that evening he's, he goes out in verse 63. And Isaac went out to muse in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes. Now God had put him in that field just at the right time. Lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and saw Isaac and dismounted from her camel. Their eyes probably just met, just for a glimpse. You can see this is in the hallmark, right? You can see this. This is where, You know where this is going. And she said to the servant, she dismounted, she says to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, This is my... He is my master. Then she took a veil and covered herself. A little bit of humility there. But that would have been protocol for that day. They, they would have been, the bride would have been chosen by the parents. She would have kept herself veiled until the wedding day and her beauty would have been revealed. And you can see the, the romanticism in that. But what you see is a, a reunion here. This is wonderful. Look at verse 66. And the servant recounted to Isaac all the things that had, he had done. It's a reunion. He's back with his master. There's success. Yahweh, God has given this success. And his, and his wife, he, he, uh, he, he will soon see his wife. But the servant knows. The servant knows. And there's a certain rejoicing, even the servant's heart, of being able to recount all of these things. And there's a certain joy. It's not spoken here, but, but we just know within our own heart. There's a reunion here. There's success of this servant. But the real success of this servant is seeing the joy to the master. That's all that we need to know. We don't need to hear what the servant says. But look... The, the joy of the Master, that's what matters more than anything else in verse 67. Then Isaac 
brought her into her mother's, uh, his mother's, Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And we all say, ah, isn't that wonderful? Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. There was joy in this servant's heart because the Lord had given success. It was the right person for Isaac. And they they loved each other. It was a perfect match because it was God's match. There was joy in coming together. And he recounted the stories. This is a storybook ending, isn't it? And they go through all of the details, I'm sure. How did this happen? How did that happen? And we do the same thing, don't we? We, we, Even football games. We recount all the things that happen. Or, you know, other stories. Good old day stories. That's just, that's what we do. That's what we do. And as servants, folks, we have to remember, we're going to have a reunion with our master someday. There's going to be a reunion. And it's going to be just this good. In fact, it'll be much better. There's going to be a reunion someday with Christ, with our beloved head. And we can't wait. We're not there yet. I think there's going to be shock on some people's mind, though. Because Christ told us about this shock, and He he forewarns us. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father. That, that's a servant. Right? He's serving me. Who does the will of my Father. Who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. In your name we prophesied. In your name we cast out demons. In your name we, we uh, did miracles. And he says, he's going to say to them, I, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's going to be a shock to those people. They're, they think, oh, we're serving the Lord. We're doing all of these things. And they're not real servants. Let me show you another shock that Jesus talks about. And that's in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34. We have some more teaching essentially on being a servant of God. But chapter 25 and verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right Come, you who are blessed of my Father, enter the kingdom. Enter the kingdom. Those who have submitted themselves to the king's rule have become his servant, yet they're the ones that enter the kingdom, which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Folks, the theology in that is so wonderful, isn't it? The picture that's painted for us. Now look what he says, verse 35. This is crucial. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, now here's the shocking part here. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see, when did we uh, see you thirsty and give you to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you naked and we clothed you? When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison? That, that was They were shocked. But they were just serving the Lord. They were just responding to the Master saying, go over here, go over there. They were just serving, serving the Lord. Just, their will was caught up in the Master's will. They didn't even realize these things. They're shocked. 
Lord, when did we do these things? And here's what the king says. This is so good. Verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, those within my family, even to the least of them, you did it to me. You didn't even know. In your serving of other people as a servant of Yahweh, a servant of God, you were serving me. Didn't even realize it. It's just reaction to the to the servant. He's just doing what comes naturally. Now, notice if you go back to verse 21. Yeah, this is so good. And the master said to him, and this is a different scenario, a different story, but here's what's going to be said. Well done, your good and faithful servant. I will, you were faithful with few things. I will make you in charge of many things. Listen, enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what Abraham's servant, that's what he was enjoying. Just seeing Isaac's response and seeing Isaac loved her, brought her in, welcomed her. He was entering into the joy. He's recounting, look what God has done. He's recounting the works, the, the things that has happened. And, he, and he, there's a joy there. And folks, there's a joy. When you get to heaven, when I get to heaven, there's going to be a, a joy of entering into our Master's joy. Rejoicing. To hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. A good and faithful servant overcomes obstacles. Good and faithful servant continues on until the, and he looks forward to entering into the joy of the master. And the question has to be asked are you a good servant? Am I a good servant? Are we good servants of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we even aware of our, our servitude? Or has Satan tripped us up? Have we bought into the Satan's lies? Are we under the influence of the world? We have to ask ourselves these questions. Do we look forward to the Master, being with the Master, and hearing Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Listen, we need, Daniel's Bible Church needs to have a mentality of a servant. A servant mentality here. And I hear it all the time. How can I serve? What can I do? This week we just we had the privilege of being able to have a, a funeral dinner. And I, I was just so amazed at how many people stepped up and say, How can I help? What can I do? It's just so wonderful to see the body of Christ coming together to, to serve. And you know what? We're not just serving each other. We're serving the God of the universe. Can you imagine... The joy of what it's going to be like, folks, when we get to heaven. And we count all of the stories. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. Lord, we are not worthy to be called your servants. We are nothing. We're less than nothing. Lord, for you to use us is just, it's amazing to us. We will be shocked. That to think at the end of our life that, that it counted for anything. But Lord, you can turn a life around. You can, you can make it pleasing. You can make it useful to you. And I pray that everyone in here, believers, 
that we would be good servants and that we serve you well during our time here on this earth. We thank you, Lord, for what a wonderful example this is, this wonderful servant of God. What a joy it is. And Lord, we look forward, oh Lord, someday we look forward to rejoicing with you in heaven. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.